You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So it was your dream house. It's always been your dream house. You've passed by it every morning on your commute. You've watched as the owners mulched the flower beds, planted flowers. You've watched them paint the siding, maybe. You've watched as it seems the grass gets greener every spring. And you thought to yourself, man, if this thing ever comes on the market, I'm there. So you saw the for sale sign out in front. You called up the realtor. Yeah, it's going to happen. You called the bank. They crunched the numbers. You're pre-approved. You're ready to go. So you make the showing. You show up. No problem. You're the first to see it. The realtor takes the keys out of the lockbox. If the inside only matches the outside, oh my goodness, what's this going to be like? (laughs) First, the walls, you find out as the door swings open, are down to the studs. There are massive holes in the floor. You can see down to the floor joist. Is that dry rot down there? That's odd. The main line for the sewer is cracked, spilling water into a muddy basement corner that looks like a sinkhole. Even the roof trusses are gone, held up by precariously placed stanchion jacks. What in the world? What's inside doesn't match what's outside. That picture, as ridiculous and impossible as it sounds, is a picture of a church without the Holy Spirit. Outwardly very impressive, inwardly very horrifying. And if you love church, that image or that word picture should send shivers down your spine. It does me, because I want to be a part of a church where the inner reality matches the exterior hope, don't you? So this week is week three in a four-part series just simply called The Holy Spirit. Last week, we took a look at Romans 8, where we talked about the work of the Spirit in the life of an individual believer. And I rarely say this, but if you missed last week, you need to go online and check it out. Just nchapel.online slash sermons, and you can watch whatever or listen to whatever. Um, Last week really helps to set the tone and, and set the table for this week, okay? But I'll do my best to catch you up in case you missed it. This week, we're going to zoom out a little bit, and we're going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit now in the life of the church, not just your life, but what does it look like when a church is dependent on, built on the Holy Spirit? I know last week was a lot to bite off, by the way, all of Romans 8 in one message. Today's going to be all of 1 Corinthians 12 in one message, so buckle up. Here's the deal, though. Um, You guys know me enough to know, I've given my life to one idea that I really do believe that the local church is the hope of the world. Jesus in the local church is the hope of the world. But there's a twist to this thing. I believe deeply that church health precedes church growth. That means for us to be the church that God calls us to be, the inside needs to match the outside. And I know, if I'm honest with myself, that I've got some rotting floor joists, and you do too. 
So this morning, we're going to head to 1 Corinthians 12, and Paul is going to give us four characteristics of a spirit-led church. What does that even mean? And we're going to unroll them one at a time. 1 Corinthians 12. Before we get there, just a little bit of historical context. So Paul planted the church in Corinth in about 49 AD, and he spent about 18 months there. At that time, that was the longest he had spent anywhere. 18 months, building and developing leaders. And then as he leaves, he hands the keys over to an influential, eloquent young pastor named Apollos. Okay, now this guy was a very different leader than Paul. His message was basically the same gospel message, but his presentation was so different that it caused a faction in the Corinthian church where some liked Paul, some liked Apollos. Others insisted that they're both terrible leaders and that prodigious Corinth deserved prestigious Peter. And as is always the case in every church where there's a division, all sides tragically miss the larger point of the gospel. And like water seeping into a cracked roof line, that factious fissure is where the trouble started. So just to push the metaphor out here a little bit, Paul was the general contractor on site for the planting and the building of the Corinthian church. He knew the blueprints, he knew the land, he knew the design, he knew how everything was supposed to go together. But in the three years since he's left, those who now are still working on the construction of the Corinthian church pulled everything back to code minimum. And from the second you opened the front door, you could tell that something was deeply, definitely wrong. Spiritually speaking, they were cutting corners, cheap, quick, compromising on quality. Let's not talk about sin. It doesn't matter. Just sweep that under the rug. Pretend like it's not that big of a deal. No one will notice. So here's the quick Corinthian sin hit list. They fought about everything from can we go to strip clubs to what about incest. Church members were taking each other to court, pursuing their rights rather than love. Sex spilled the banks of marriage and included whoever was willing. They'd worship demons on Saturday and then come to church on Sunday. They got drunk during communion, divisive during worship, and they were silent on the gospel. Funny how that usually is the last thing to hit. So in short, this church had rotted from the inside out. What's the result? They had so little influence over Corinth because Corinth had so much influence over them. The Holy Spirit had become a footnote Jesus' authority was reduced to the guy that got them out of hell so they could live however they wanted, and the father was this gray-bearded man in the sky that they were happy to not think about. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God uses Paul to call them to a full-on, down-to-the-studs restoration. And all of their petty divisiveness and contentious infighting prompts Paul to finally explode in an uncharacteristically indelicate comment in chapter 11, right before where we're going to be this morning, where he says this. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you. Now, that's odd. Why? There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. How about that for a theology of division? There should be division in a church. Why? Here's something that Paul wants us to hear. You know what stress does to a church? Stress reveals who's serious and who's playing along. 
division trivializes the gospel to a dying world, and Paul says, I refuse. Incidentally, I love that. Bears weightily for our day, does it not? So if you want to read about a charming church, don't read 1 Corinthians. But if you want to develop some strong, solid, substantial theology about what a church should be, start here. So with these words about divisions and opinions and self-serving agendas still ringing in their ears, Paul is about to tell them what it means to be a church under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean for the inside to match the outside? Four characteristics over 26 verses in chapter 12. Here we go. Characteristic number one, a spirit-led church is built on the gospel. Got to get this right, right up front. A spirit-led church is built on the gospel. Verse one, here's what he says. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, stop. Here's the thing. Whenever there's a sermon about spiritual gifts, one of two things happen. Half of the room goes like, what are those? I don't get that. The other half goes, ooh, I know what mine are, or I wonder what mine are, or I took a test once, right? Now, Paul wisely knows that our inclination is to go to ourselves first. We can't help it. And so Paul puts a speed bump, and he's about to slow us down to make sure that we understand this subject correctly, because there's something way more important about, under, uh, about spiritual gifts, unity in the church, than understanding ourselves. He doesn't start with ourselves, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. For you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So he starts off with this really pastoral word where he says, like, I don't want you to be unaware. I want to make sure you get this. And then he starts talking about idols and, like, Jesus being accursed and the Lord. What's he saying here? Before he says anything about spiritual gifts, he wants to make sure the Corinthians understand one thing crystal clear. What you believe about the gospel is the most important thing about you. And so before, talks, before he talks about what God has put in you, Paul talks about what Jesus has done for you. Because that's where the Corinthians got off track. That's what led to that dirty laundry list that I read just a few minutes ago. They loved their idea of church more than they loved Jesus who makes church possible. And this isn't a first century thing. It should sober us to think that churches could be called successful because of talented people, skilled people, but ultimately empty people. Churches can have all kinds of blind spots, can't they? Common things that we just don't see about ourselves. And so before we go on, I want to name three, just quickly, while we're under under this idea of being built on the gospel, three common gospel blind spots. Number one, assuming the gospel Churches get in trouble when they assume the gospel. What I mean by that is reducing the gospel to like very basic spirituality, saying like, yeah, I read this track once and like I'm saved, so now I don't need the gospel anymore, okay? So um, quick story. The other day, well, it wasn't the other day. It was a couple of months ago. Um, I had had a guy come and he wanted to talk to me about preaching, which is always interesting. And I'm always up for feedback, so it's like, okay, let's, let's chat. He said, well, here's the thing. He says, I really like preaching at, at the chapel, but here's the problem. Like, every message is basically just a gospel message. When do we get to the deep stuff? <laughs> right? 
And so like what I wanted to do didn't match what I actually did, so just confession there. What I actually said was, I don't, in my head, I'm going like, I, I fail to see the problem here. Like, what's the issue? And so eventually I tried to say as kindly as I could, like, I don't think you understand depth. Like, I need the gospel just as much today as the day that I was saved, right? You never graduate from the gospel. I never assume the gospel. Are you bored with Jesus? Seriously? We talk about Jesus a lot around here, not because nothing else is important, but because everything else finds its ultimate importance in him. And so gospel depth is not shown in bigger books about Jesus, but deeper affections for Jesus. And so I never want to assume the gospel. It's what we do. There's one hope. Second blind spot the churches get into is when we shift the focus from the cross. Here's something everybody needs to be really, really clear on. I I want you to have an answer for this question. What makes someone a Christian? What is the defining element of saving faith? Churches get a blind spot when we shift the spotlight away from what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and move it to anything else. Like good behavior, the people you don't hang out with, the people you do hang out with. And I have in mind, since we're talking about the Holy Spirit, extraordinary and often unbiblical expressions or manifestations of the Spirit. Churches teach, some churches teach, that you have to speak in tongues, there has to be some kind of a miraculous healing, that these things have to happen in your life for you to be truly saved. And that sounds really exciting and compelling. One problem, it's not biblical. There's one dividing line for what saving faith is, and it's justification by faith in what Jesus has accomplished, period. We don't add to it. Paul talked about this in Romans 1. He says, the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Churches miss it when anything else other than the cross becomes the litmus test for saving faith. Third blind spot, and then we're gonna move on. Peripheralizing the gospel. Here's what I mean by this one. Peripheralizing the gospel is when the gospel message and the truths that surround it Like from our pulpit to our conversations in the minivan, when we stop talking about the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, our need for redemption, the power of the cross, and the wonder of grace, when we stop talking about those things in favor of anything else, we've peripheralized the gospel. That's where churches get in trouble. And so Paul goes, "Uh uh-uh, we gotta get this right first. Because that's where the church in Corinth got off track Here's something sobering for us. They heard the gospel from Paul's own mouth. They knew the truth. Could you imagine what that would be like? To have Paul as your pastor? Guys, I would sit down there with a notebook if it meant Paul could preach here. (laughs) What's the point? Even perfect leadership isn't enough when you take your eyes off of Jesus. Show me a church where sin is taken seriously and I'll show you a place where the Holy Spirit is at work. Show me a a place, a church, where the gospel is common conversation and I will show you people who are poised for revival. When a church holds the gospel as central, the church thrives, but when the gospel becomes peripheral, the church is vulnerable. So that's characteristic number one that Paul makes sure that we get. A spirit-led church is built on the gospel. Spirit-led conviction number two. A spirit-led church is selfless. 
selfless. We're going to pick things up in verse 4 in just a second, but before we do, I want to back up and, and clarify a couple of things. So we're going to be talking about spiritual gifts. I want to clarify a couple of terms. The difference between talents and skills and spiritual gifts. I think this will probably be helpful for you, okay? Talents. These are the things that you are naturally born with. They're things that like, it could be genetics, it could be just like something. This is just the image of God in you, in your individual way. And when you see somebody working in their talents, it's just like art. It's like Michael Jordan and basketball just had to happen. Paul McCartney, born to write songs. Vincent Van Gogh, born to paint. It's just what they do. Nobody else can do what they do. It's their talent. This raw, natural ability. That's talents. Then there's skills. Skills are these things that I develop. I work on these things, right? They take time and intentionality and training and focus and work and discipline, right? But they only can go so far, right? I can train my skills all I want. I am never going to be able to ball like Mike. I'm never going to be able to paint like Van Gogh or write songs like Paul McCartney. There's talents. Now, there's spiritual gifts. But for the non-Christian, you have talents and you have skills, and this is where it stops. This is an important piece of theology we need to get here. Your talents and your skills, your hard work, all of that goes into a great career. You can be good at things, right? You have skills, you have talents. Neither of those are what Paul is talking about here. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul wants us to see that he is differentiating spiritual gifts from anything else. Spiritual gifts only come after you recognize Christ as Savior and the Spirit lives in you. Paul wants us to get that clearly because if not, everything he's about to say is just static on the radio, just empty noise, motivational speech. So with that, let's get back to verse Four. Here's what he says. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We're going to come back to that phrase in just a moment. Now here comes his list. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, we're not going to go through what all of those mean. That's another sermon for another time. What's all that about? All those gifts that you have, if you're here this morning, you're a believer, you have spiritual gifts, they're not about you. Turn to somebody next to you this morning, and if you're watching at home, whoever's sitting next to you on the couch, even if it's your dog, repeat this after me. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. All right, now here's why the spiritual gifts that you have are so different from the talents you were born with or the skills that you develop. Your gifts only have value when you see them as an opportunity to serve others, not an occasion for your personal benefit. So how do you keep that from happening? It's right there in verse seven where he says, for the common good. That's 
the direction. I want to pull off here, though, for a second, because this is where this conversation tends to go sideways. Um, I have sat through, listened to, studied dozens of sermons and lectures and seminars and teachings all about the gifts of the Spirit, and they all sort of sound kind of the same thing. They all sort of point to a direction that says, get out of the pew and start serving, right? You're not saved to sit. You're saved to serve. You ever heard a message like that before? Okay. Good, that's true. However, there's something underneath that that we need to really, really understand. You should know, coming out of COVID-19, North Canton Chapel, like every church in the world, has definite programmatic needs. For us, you heard it this morning, getting family ministries going at 9 o'clock is our top priority. We need volunteers to do that. But as I've listened to so many of you over this past year, and I've listened to my own heart, I don't think selfishness is our problem. Maybe it is for you. I don't know. But there's something else in there that I just feel like we need to address. COVID has taught us a couple of things. It's actually done us a couple of favors in some ways. Most of us serve from our spiritual margin, and 2020 ate that margin for lunch. How many of you are tired? Don't raise your hand. How many of you are like a little wore out right now? You're a little frustrated, right? You're in a different place than you were maybe two years ago. COVID didn't mess everything up. COVID did two things for every church in America. It exposed our spiritual lives and it accelerated our spiritual direction. Say that again, because it's super important. It exposed our spiritual lives and it accelerated our spiritual direction. It exposed us. It revealed who we already are. You didn't have time in the word, you definitely don't have it now. But then it also accelerated it. it. Whoever we were becoming, we got here much quicker. In a subtle twist of irony, COVID actually unmasked the church. <laughs> so here's how this ties to 1 Corinthians 12. That phrase nestled right in the middle of verse 7, the common good, that's the phrase we need to key in on. What does it mean to live in the church for the common good right now? Because you hear me say that and you go, dude, I am financially stretched, I am physically exhausted, I am mentally drained, and I'm spiritually dry, and now you want me to serve? <laughs> so let me switch gears from, you guys know I'm not a motivational speaker anyway, I don't even have to say that. Let me just be your pastor for a minute. The body of Christ at the North Canton Chapel needs the spiritually healthy you more than the spiritually busy you. Yeah, we've got needs. Every church does. Yes, we're growing. Praise God for what he's doing through our student ministry. It's exciting, and I want you to be a part of it. But, hear me, who you are in Christ is way more important than what you could ever do for Christ. Church is not where empty slots are filled with empty people, but where empty people are filled with Jesus. And so that phrase, the common good, may actually, in the short term, mean something tougher than serving. Ironically, maybe the most selfless thing that you could do right now is to admit that you need help. And just go, I can't get there. For some of you, you need to have a time in the word again. You haven't had that in a long time. You need to get back there before you ever sign up to lead a community group. For some of you, you need to learn how to pray with your spouse and your kids. 
These are the things that make for long-term health in a church. For some of you, that old addiction has resurfaced. Let's get after that together and let's bring Jesus to those needs. We need to bust this myth of caring for myself means I'm being selfish. If It's not. If the body's supposed to be healthy, it's actually a prerequisite. Sometimes the most selfless thing you could do is to admit that you need care. But we're a church of like 800 people, so that means 800 different things. It's so complex. I can't tell you what to do. You've got to go to the Spirit on that and let Him lead you. So that's characteristic number two. A Spirit-led church is selfless. Here's characteristic number three. Now, this is where things really heat up for Paul. A Spirit-led church is diverse. Paul's about to launch into this extended metaphor, anticipating a very important question, and it's a question that has been asked in every church since the beginning of time. It's a question the Corinthians are asking, and it's a question you might be asking yourself this morning. Do I even belong here? Does this church even need me? Am I even noticed? I think about those of you who are watching online this morning. Maybe you haven't even been in this building. You're wondering to yourself, do they even miss me? So in anticipation of that question, here's how Paul answers it. Verse 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit you were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, Democrats, Republicans, maskers, no, whoa, doesn't say that, sorry. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, well, I'm not a hand, I don't belong here, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, now here's his point, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So in Corinth, very pagan cosmopolitan city, people chose gods like we choose cell phone providers. They were contractually obligated to them, and there was this small little bit of pride in being like, well, what time with AT&T? Oh, their coverage is terrible. You need to... So here's the gods, your options at Corinth. First, Hera, who was the goddess of marriage, had a temple in Corinth. Tyche, who was the goddess of good fortune, was there. But if you walk 15 minutes north of the city center, you'd find the temple of a god named Demeter. And here's where things get interesting. Demeter's temple had private dining rooms for parties, so you could have receptions there. Your friends would receive invitations to dine as a guest at the god's table. Private bathhouses, you can imagine that. And something called an Asclepion. Now the Asclepion was this separate little place where you could sleep, like a little hotel. And while you were sleeping there, you would, wait from, you would wait for Demeter to come visit you in the night and heal you of whatever infirmity you came in to worship him, seeking his blessing for. And then on the way out, you could buy a little clay statue of the body part that he healed. It's kind of like a little gift shop attached to a hotel. Great marketing strategy, terrible theology. 
So picture this. First century Corinthians saw little clay parts all over their city. Little terracotta eyes set into windowsills, hands on cafe tables, feet and ears on front porches nestled in doorways. Here's the thing. The Corinthians had been taught to think of the body as disconnected parts rather than a unified whole. Track with me on this. The Corinthians had been taught that growth and healing only comes when everybody looks alike because the gods were not capable of healing a very diverse body. And into that dark, mystic, fear-ridden paganism, Paul drops this theological bombshell in verse 13 when he says there's one spirit, one baptism, one body. You're all connected, and to think otherwise is to minimize the power of Christ. And you don't want to do that. And then he bold, italic, underline, highlights it in verse 18 when he says, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, what? As he chose. Don't miss that. Our God is not some small, impotent, pagan God who lives in a hotel can only treat little pieces. What Demeter was powerless to do in his little gift shop, our God does by the power of the cross. So Paul takes all those little clay statues, grinds them up into dust, and blows them away. What does this mean? Diversity, biblically defined, means that in Christ you are valued even if you don't believe it. In Christ, you are vital even when you can't see it. In Christ, you matter even when you doubt it. Not because of who you are naturally, but because of who our God is able to make you. And some of you need to hear this because COVID this last year has been the loneliest year of your life. You are seen, and you are heard, and you matter. And you matter because of who God can make you. And a watching pagan Corinth demands to know, Paul, Jews and Gentiles, like at the same table in the same church, eating together? What could these people possibly have in common? And Paul's answer is, it's not what they have in common that's so powerful, it's who they have in common that's so powerful. North Canton Chapel God has sovereignly arranged his church with incredible diversity according to his perfect plan and we should be very careful that we are not working against him. Don't give the world an opportunity to divide what Christ died to unify. I can't think of a stronger way to put it. So that's essential number three. Spirit-led church is diverse. Characteristic number four Here's the other side of the coin. A spirit-led church is unified or united. Paul flips the coin over. In verses 12 through 20, he anticipated the question, what if I feel like I don't belong here? Now he flips it. And in verse 21, he anticipates another question. Because now it's not, well, I don't belong here because I'm not. Now he addresses people saying, you don't belong here because you're not. Both of those mentalities are toxic to a church. And here's Paul's Corinthian corrective in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
nor the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And in those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts, that's exactly what he means there, are treated with greater modesty, while our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. You hear him warming up again? God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have what? The same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This past week, I heard a statement that I really love, and I want to extend it to you, and it fits so well. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You say that after me? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There you go. (laughs) The ground is level at the foot of the cross. What's that mean? It means that out there, you may be a CEO, or you may be bussing tables. Out there, you may live in a half-million-dollar house or a two-room apartment. Out there, you may have a lily-white reputation or you may have a record. But in here, the playing field is level. All of the world's advantages don't count here. No one gets special treatment. Funny how division always starts with, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I've got the inside track. You're not seeing something clearly. I'm seeing it right. You're seeing it wrong. I'm worth more than you are. My opinion counts more. It's heavier. Not a first century issue alone. Here's what that means. When the Holy Spirit starts to work in a church, he starts with our sense of entitlement. That I'm better, that I've got something, that I've got a leg up on things. That my unique perspective allows me to see things differently and better. And your perspective doesn't matter. Guys, that's just pride. It's all it is. I've got it just like you do. And it's the opposite of what Paul is coaching the Corinthians toward here. You saw it. It's right in verse 25. Take another look at it. That there may be no division, but that the members would have the same care for another. There's a big difference between caring for someone and condescending to someone, isn't there? You can't care for someone if you think you're better than they are. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, if you really want to let your imagination run, imagine what that meant, that kind of social egalitarianism meant to a Corinthian world that was obsessed with status and upward mobility and flash. Before we close, though, I want to give you something else I thought that was really interesting here. Did you notice how honest Paul is as he closes out this section? He says, look, if one member suffers, all are going to suffer. If one member rejoices, all are going to rejoice. Isn't it interesting how when we talk about church, we lead the conversation with benefits first? (laughs) Say things like, oh, it's a great place to grow, plenty of opportunities to serve, oh, this is great, this is great, you're going to like this, you're not going to like this, and Paul just goes, no, 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 let's forget about all that stuff. You're going to suffer together. What that means is if I stub my toe, my brain's going to know about it, and my hand is obligated to do something about it. That's what a healthy church looks like. That we all may have the same care. You don't have the option to not care for people because you disagree with them. Isn't that fun? 
You're going to rejoice together, but yeah, you're going to suffer together too. Here's what's fascinating. I'm not trying to be super negative, but I want to sit here for just a second. One of the concerns that I have when I look at the church in the United States is that we run from suffering because it's hard instead of running to it because it's the pathway to becoming more like Jesus. What does that look like? I'll just leave. I just won't show up. I won't be there anymore. Uh, Guys, don't run. Not because we need some huge church. God's gonna build his church. I don't care. But because this is what God wants to do in you. He wants to build you into something that you cannot be on your own so that you can learn that he is good and that we are not. So I'm gonna give you a couple of things to think about. Four questions that just correspond to each one of these characteristics. First, where are you on the gospel? Is your life built on the gospel? Are you clear on that? Because everything else I just said is a motivational speech. Boring. (laughs) Are you clear on the gospel? Do you treasure Christ above all? Do you obsess over him in your conversations? Or are your conversations filled with other things? Second question, are you seeking the common good? Not living for yourself. Guys, you can amass a pile of money, retire, die, and go to hell. Don't do that. Live for something bigger than yourself. That's what the church is about. Third question, when it comes to belonging, what is your next step? What does that mean for you? Church membership's a great thing. I don't mean that to sound like a commercial, but because we're, we are designed as people to flourish in community. It's what God calls us to do. And maybe you hear me say that and you go, I don't know, I got some questions. You should have some questions. That's good. Email me. Text one of us as a staff member and go, hey, I want to know what you believe about this, 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 this. I will tell you. Last question for you, and this is probably the toughest, honestly. It's the toughest for me as I had to sit through this all week. If you really believe that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, does your life show that? Or do you lead with your accomplishments over Christ's accomplishments? you believe that anybody is welcome at the foot of the cross? Or do we put other barriers before them? It's easy to take pictures of the outside of a house. When you open the door, really swing it wide open, there are basement corners. There's that weird spot under the basement steps. There's the darkened corner filled with things that I'd rather hide. The inside, though, needs to match the outside. A spirit-led church is messy because a spirit-led church is vulnerable. May the spirit help us. Let's pray. Father, we do say thank you for your sovereignty. (laughs) That you know what you're doing, that you're building your church. That the forces of hell will not overcome it. That no one can stay your hand or say to him, what have you done? God, you are unquestionably sovereign, unquestionably good. We need your help. Father, I just pray for our city. I think of North Canton, I think of Canton, Jackson, I think of the communities of Lake, Plain Local. 
all these surrounding communities, God, where our enemy wants to get a foothold. God, would you use us and other gospel-preaching churches to push back against the darkness and proclaim the hope that you are powerful enough. God, you are good, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.